as a leader, have you ever felt it's impossible to create an innovative space or system for students to learn and create? I know over the years I have definitely struggled to break that cycle of tradition. Today I have two experts on innovation, George Kuros and Katie Novak, and they just wrote an amazing book called Innovate Inside the Box, Empowering Learners Through the UDL and Innovators Mindset. George and Katie are here not only to talk about their new book, but to share real strategies and to show that it's not impossible to have an innovative environment. I can't wait to share this incredible wealth of knowledge on the Aspire podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. George and Katie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having us, Nate. Thanks for having us. And as you both know, the show is centered on leadership development, and today I would absolutely love to hear about your leadership journey. Yeah, Absolutely. I was a a middle school and high school English teacher for a long while. And while I was teaching, I actually went and got my doctorate in education and had these kind of long-term plans to go into leadership. But it like wasn't anything that I was thinking about in like the next five or 10 years. And I had an assistant superintendent at the time who, you know, would come in and see me teach and knew that I had the doctorate and was like, you really should move up into a leadership position. And I, I just, I wasn't ready for it kind of in my career. I'm like, no, I love teaching. I love kids. And I feel like I can make such an impact here. And for me, it was like really a jump to try to see how I could really impact people as a leader. Cause I just thought of like, I have all these great relationships with students and I make these connections and I can make all this difference. And, and it was uh, Dr. Kristen Rodriguez. And she actually got me to like you could still have that but with teachers so creating those relationships helping them set personalized goals and then helping them to meet them in like really innovative ways and so for me leadership kind of chose me before I chose it and you know I was a seventh grade English teacher and a position opened up to be kind of the ELA and reading coordinator for the district and I actually didn't apply for it at first because I was like you know what I just love planning lessons for students and I'm going to miss it too much and eventually you know a bunch of my colleagues encouraged me to apply and I realized that so much of what makes a great teacher makes a great leader and thinking of professional development as really engaging lesson design was really empowering for me creating relationships with staff members the same way that I do with students you know always checking up on them asking them for their feedback what could we do better you know I realized that I'm I'm a teacher for life even as a leader so I went from being a district-wide curriculum coordinator to then becoming an assistant superintendent in another district and I have been the assistant superintendent in my district for six years and I love the position I oversee all curriculum instruction and assessment and so it really is like my classroom just keeps getting bigger and bigger but now I get to focus on how do we create a district that truly meets the needs of all students and if that's kind of our goal it's like we have to get everybody on board to get there so I work as a point eight assistant superintendent I get to spend all of my time with teachers and principals and assistant principals and curriculum supervisors and it's it's the most humbling and rewarding aspect of teaching I've ever been a part of and it's so similar in so many ways which shocks me you know now almost a decade into leadership of how similar it really is and and what surprises me sometimes is how some leaders kind of lose that instructional leadership piece you know they forget that we really are at our core all educators and that's what keeps a building really moving. So George, what about you? What was your leadership journey like? 
And I appreciate the last sentiment by Katie, just talking about, you know, how important it is that we focus on teaching and learning no matter what position we are in, in education. And I, I do agree. I've seen that lost, you know, a lot of times the higher up people go in organizations, they tend to forget like that's why they're there. And it's not that they're forgetting kids at all. It's that they're the businesses teaching and, and learning. And I think that's something that we have to always kind of keep in the, in the forefront of, of the work that we do. So I really appreciate that. And I know Katie does an excellent job, you know, in a division office, you know, position focusing on teaching and learning. It's really helped move her, um, her, her district forward. For me personally, I think it's really important to separate what's my leadership journey and what's my administrator journey, because for, for me, my leadership journey actually started before I became an administrator. And that's really due in part to a principal I had. Her name is Kelly Wilkins and just absolutely amazing. Um, just incredible best leader I've ever had to this day to just uh, really shifted a lot of way I think and you know impact a lot of things I do today and uh, they hired me as a teacher in um, uh, under school a middle school teacher and even the interview process was really interesting they actually they didn't interview for a grade seven math teacher they just interviewed for a middle school teacher and what they actually did was they just looked at people different candidates and they thought, okay, you know, let's look at, like, let's try to find the best person and, and then tailor a job to them, which was like a really different way of thinking because, you know, I might not have had, you know, grade seven math experience, but they wanted to like find strengths and see what they needed at the school. And I thought it was really interesting, but uh, I actually did um, leadership with technology in that school. And even though I was kind of given that opportunity at other schools, she gave me a lot of ownership over the position, which I thought was really fascinating. She actually let me make my own schedule, thinking about like, how do we use technology in deep and meaningful ways? Not you're going to teach technology to kids once a week, this period for this classroom. And I was actually really always kind of shocked at how much ownership she gave me, which actually made me more accountable to the entire building because I made decisions that affected all teachers, even though I was in the role of a teacher. And I was actually only there for a year. And uh, she kind of pushed me into looking at some administrator jobs. And I applied for an assistant principal. And probably until that year, I would have never even considered it. And I got an assistant principal job. And in that interview, uh, another amazing leader named Archie Lillico, he interviewed me. And it was kind of fascinating because in the interview, him and I actually got in a fight and started arguing during the interview. And I thought it was the worst interview I've ever had in my life. And about two days later, he called me and offered me the job. And he actually said, you're the only person that actually challenged me. And that's what I want is that as long as we're focused on what's best for kids, I don't want you letting me go and do something without challenging me. And, and that's what I'm looking for. So it's something that I've always kind of kept in the work that I do is that we want people to challenge, to you know, push back and share their ideas as long as we're all focused on what we're doing is best for kids. And then uh, after that, I went on to be a principal and worked at Central Office. And similar to Katie, my role was focused on uh, innovative teaching and learning. And uh, it, it was really a, a role that was co-created with myself and our, my superintendent team. And uh, yeah, it was just really fascinating. And the whole focus was obviously focusing on how do we actually spread innovative teaching and learning ideas within the district, but also empowering teachers within their own schools and, and leaders to actually focus on helping their staff and their students as well. So that wasn't, you know, if George leaves, the initiative dies with him. It's how do we empower this so 
it's people in school, you know, at the point of learning, moving this forward. And, and so now my work is obviously, I go around and work with school districts and work with school teams and, and really focusing on how do we empower people. So it's kind of, you know, my leadership and administrator journey and how I ended up to where I am today. George and Katie have a new book out called Innovate Inside the Box, and I'm completely obsessed with this book. I've only had it a short time, but it's absolutely worn out. There's so many important concepts on the changes that need to occur in education, and I love the many strategies provided that enhance the innovator's mindset movement. Usually I ask more general questions to our guests about leadership, but on this podcast, I really want to dive into the Innovate Inside the Box book. So Katie... You both cite in the book growing and declining skills, which future employers are seeking. Building resilience is one trait on the list, and you cite how important it is for students to attain this trait. How do we as leaders create a culture of embracing mistakes instead of promoting failure? So I think that's a great question because everything that we're talking about, you know, obviously we want to build it in students, but the lens that I look at practice through, which is universal design for learning, is how do we identify the barriers that like really prevent something? And then how do we proactively design an environment, you know, that proactively from the get-go eliminates those barriers? So, you know, I think that the biggest barrier to taking really big leaps in practice is fear. You know, if you're thinking about, wow, you know, I would really love to try something really different with my class. There's always this question of, well, I can't do that because I might get in trouble or, you know, I'm not going to be allowed to do it or people are going to think less of me or if I mess up, now I'm going to have to answer all these questions. And so one of the things that I find that's been really helpful in working with my colleagues is basically from the get go, just saying like, listen, we are all going to mess up. And that's kind of a beautiful part of this. And being really, really open about the fact that all of us will make mistakes and all of us could do things better. And I think what's been really helpful for this is to create a culture of feedback. And so we talk about that a lot throughout the book. And we talk about it through the lens of creating a classroom where it's actually built around a culture of feedback, where we're saying to kids, you know, listen, like, I'm going to take risks in teaching. And I want you to tell me, did it work, how I could do it better next time. But I also want the same thing for students. So I want to be able to say to students, like, here's the goal, like, try something crazy to meet the goal. Like, think about how you learn what you're interested in. And I want you to create a personalized pathway that will get you to the goal. And I will help scaffold that. And I will give you feedback, but just try it. And the best thing to do is when you try and, and inevitably, you misstep, you know, there's going to be some areas where you're going to have to, again, be resilient and come back from these micro failures. The best place to go is to collaborate and get feedback from other people. And so you have to eliminate that fear of coming to somebody and saying, I fell totally flat in my face, and how do I do that better? So one of the things that we have done in our practice that I think is, is really incredibly innovative from a leadership perspective, and in the book, Innovate Inside the Box, we talk about doing this with students. But we do something that's called a central office report card. When teachers have to provide grades for our students, we ask them to grade us as well as administrators. And so we put together like some courses that we are going to be graded in. And those are visibility, our availability for communication, and then also how valuable are we as instructional leaders and resources. And it's essentially we give them statements where they can agree or disagree that we're excelling in those areas. And if not, we encourage them to provide us with feedback of how we could do things better 
in those roles. And we always provide the two sentence starters. It would be cool if, or have you considered? So, you know, it doesn't come off as angry and as negative if you're saying like, well, you never do this as opposed to, it would be really cool if you took some time to model what that might look like and then we could practice. And so we talk about, we wanna do that with students. We want students to say to us as educators, you know, it would be really cool if we were allowed to do things a little bit differently instead of always listening to lectures and taking notes. And I want teachers to be able to say to me as a leader, you know what, it would be really cool if our professional development was a little more personalized because that way we could all work on our, our own goals in our own ways. But what we can do is we can model resilience when we get feedback like that. Because when I say, wow, like that's a really cool perspective. I hadn't thought of it that way. Would you be interested in joining me in kind of creating a new model for professional development? What I'm doing is I'm not only embracing this concept of like taking risks to talk to me, but I'm moving all of us forward. So I think that again, really succinctly, we have to make it okay to acknowledge micro failure as a means to getting to macro success. And then we have to really elevate the conversations we're having with each other where we can provide each other with feedback that is helpful, that is moving us in the right direction as opposed to something that is seen as more punitive or negative. And George can talk a little bit more about that as well as when we talk about in the book, you know, we want to really focus on positives. It's not to say that we don't acknowledge that we all have things that we're working on and we all have weaknesses, but in order to keep people motivated and moving in the right direction, you do have to acknowledge the, the work that goes into it and the places where success is really already happening. And I think that's a good segue to my next question. So George, when folks hear the term innovative mindset, I think they immediately think of topics such as technology or project-based learning, but you share that the core of innovative mindset is relationships. In the book, you share a very impactful rock story that a gentleman shared with you at a conference to illustrate how important relationships are. Would you just take a moment to share that story with the listeners and explain why relationships are at the core of the innovator's mindset? Yeah, I was actually talking to a group of educators in California, and I was talking about a story about um, a student that I worked with. It was actually, you know, it's a funny story about something that I said, and he came back and connected with me about four years later to to actually um, tell, tell me that he remembered what I said. And just to kind of remind people how important our words are and how they stick with kids forever. And he said, hey, I, that story you told about Kyle really resonated with me. Can I share a story with, of my own? He said, I said, absolutely. And then he um, talked about, he actually pulled a, a rock about the size of his fist out of his backpack and he put it on a table that I was sitting at. Said, so when I first started teaching in my first couple of years, I remember this one student and really struggling and he was really good at some other things, but not in the things that were the focus of my class. And at that time, it was all about, you know, my class and that the students did well. And he said he got frustrated with the student one day and basically told the student that he could teach a rock better than the student. And the student actually said nothing. He just took the comment and teacher never really thought about it. And so the next day that student came back and he put a rock on the teacher's table and he said, you know, he swore, he said, prove it. And the teacher actually has been carrying that rock for his entire career in his backpack everywhere he goes as a reminder of how important words are and what they say. And a lot of times I get pushback on the notion of, you know, relationships being being kind of at the core of what we do, you know, that then you hear comments like you don't need a relationship to learn, you know, like, you know, the Rita Pearson quote talking about you can't learn from people you don't like. And I actually agree that you can learn from people you don't like, but you won't learn as much. And I think that 
the, the focus on why relationships are so crucial to the notion of what we do in innovation is because as Katie was talking about, you know, people taking risk and trying things, I'm not going to take risks if I don't think the people that I'm connected with don't have my back. That if I, if I feel they're going to, you know, as soon as I screw up, they're going to point fingers at me. They're going to actually go out and look, you know, for things I've done wrong. Personally, when I'm working with other people, I want to be in a space where, you know, there's trust. There's this focus on these people will push me, but they always have my back. And I was mentioning earlier, you know, that the importance of challenge Sometimes people challenge solely for the sake of challenging to make themselves look better. And you can pick that up really quick on why they do that. And you have to build that culture. And going back to my superintendent and former principal, Kelly Wilkins, she said you have to build that culture of you know pressure and support. That if you pressure people too much, but they don't actually feel they're supported, they're going to fold under that pressure. But if they're too supportive without the push, they don't actually grow. And so I think that's why we always talk about relationships being at the center of innovation, that we create this culture where we can take risks and we know and, and things can go wrong, but we are supported to, you know, redirect and, and, and figure out a way to, to lead success. And kind of listening to Katie talking about that, something I talk about quite a bit and we kind of touch upon in the book is that we don't focus on, you know, the importance of failure. We focus on the importance of getting back up and how crucial that is because, Failure is a part of learning, but it, it can't can't be an endpoint. There's sometimes you gotta you know pick up pieces and, and move forward, or you gotta move in a different direction. And so I think that when you don't have that relationship, students, teachers, principals, and everyone else in the, the district doesn't feel safe in trying new things, trying innovative things. They will stick to what they know, whether it works for kids or not, because that's where they're most comfortable. And I think to find that place of discomfort, you, you've got to be uncomfortable. So in, in light of that, Katie, what is the benefit of focusing on the student's strengths versus the student's weaknesses or failure? So it's, it's not that we don't acknowledge student weaknesses because, of course, we want students to work on things that they're, they're challenged by. It's just that so much of education is deficit-based. You know, so much of what we're doing is talking about how do we fix kids? How do we make it better? And we need to really change that narrative to be more asset-based and acknowledge that all of us have weaknesses in something. And what I would always tell my students or when I'm in a, a professional development setting, I'll say everyone in this room is the best at something and everyone in the room the worst at something. Like period, end of story, there's no way around that. And I'm much more likely to want to work on the things that I'm the worst at, so to speak, if I'm acknowledged for all the things that I do well. You know, otherwise you end up with this huge weighty kind of like stereotype threat of everybody sees me as this like weak student. And so I, you know, I don't like the term when we say, you know, that student's not working hard, that student's lazy. And it's like, okay, but that kid's up until 3.30 every morning playing video games. The kid does know how to work hard. We just haven't figured out how to get him to work hard right here, right now. And so I think it's, it's not saying that we're going to, you know, ignore the real challenges that some students face. But you first have to acknowledge that all of them are amazing at something and you have to build that relationship where they want to work for you. And then again, you know, when you're acknowledging you're really great at things, you can say things like, you know, you are just so great at this. And I know this is a challenge, but we're going to work on this challenge. So one funny story about my own kids. I am a mom of four. And my oldest son is now 10. And when he was in first grade, he came home and he's like, Mom, I have the best news. I am like one of the best readers in the class. And I was like, why, why would you say that? Cause I, I knew that he struggled with reading, you know, he's now doing great, but in first grade he was really struggling. So I said, why do you think you're one of the best readers in the class? 
And he's like, cause I get to go to an extra reading class with a reading teacher. And I'm like, Oh, and, and you think that this is cause you're a great reader. And he's like, yeah. Cause when we went in, she said that we were all like the most special readers and that's why we get to read more. And I'm like, Oh buddy, let me put the big kibosh on that and tell you something real quick. You know how you are like a nasty athlete and you are literally like the most charismatic boy and you have so many friends and you're so helpful. Well, buddy, you can't read yet. So like you go to reading because you don't really know how to read yet. And he was like, no, she didn't say that. And I'm like, no, sweetie, but, but you know, you're kind of struggling at reading. And that's like, you're so awesome at these other things. And like, we're going to hit the reading goal. You're going to be so good. And he was like, why didn't she just tell me that? And it was like, when I tell that story, people are like horrified. They're like, you said that to your son. I'm like, but my son knows everything he's amazing at. So hearing like, well, you know, you need to work on reading. That's not upsetting. And we have to spend so much time first acknowledging all those amazing strengths and what students bring. So then we say, hey, like this is just one small thing and we could work on this. They're like, yeah, I get it. And we're so one dimensional with calling kids struggling students or, you know, underperforming kids, or your low readers, as if that defines them, and it, it simply doesn't. Since we're talking about innovation and creativity, I want to take a minute to tell you about a new online resource from Better Leaders, Better Schools called Go Community. This has become one of my favorite places to go to engage with other amazing school leaders. This online resource is a great place to have conversations with other leaders, gain insight, engage in book studies, and develop your own leadership capacity. This online community is very, very different than social media because it's a private community with the same goal. I highly recommend using Go Community to level up your leadership capacity. If you're interested, go to joshstamper.com resources to sign up. George, in the book, there was a powerful statement that you had. It said, students are achieving great things not because of school, but in spite of it. It seems that many classrooms are seeking engagement, which in turn creates compliance. What can our leaders do to increase student empowerment and allow our students to question the world around them? Well, I think, you know, kind of building on what Katie was talking about and, and the conversation about focusing on strengths, I think that a lot of times what we do, you know, is really focus again on, you know, what our kids can do and try to get them. And, you know, we base a lot of it on, you know, what our test scores say and that value that we often talk about the importance of relationships, talk about the importance of innovation. Yet we often only show test scores, whether we went up or down. And I remember someone said to me that basically how we assess drives our teaching, not the other way around. So if you always hear about test scores, you're going to start focusing on, well, it's all about the test scores, whether a kid's good at it or not. And I think that if, if you really want to focus on developing students doing great things because of school, we have to really start broadening how we look at the idea of being smart and a lot of times when we refer to our smart students or our gifted students, we're actually referring to our top academic students as opposed to looking for that intelligence in our students. And, and just like a simple example of a bad practice I used to do that I no longer do and stopped doing, you know, in my teaching career is that you have a student, I, I would teach math and then phys ed, I was teaching both subjects. And, you know, you have a student um, who's struggling in math who loves phys ed. And I would always say, like, okay, if you don't get your math done, you're not going to phys ed, right? You, you can't go until then. Never that strategy ever once ever actually get the kid to love math. It actually probably did the opposite, right? And, and so you have this kid who accelerates at something. I take that away as almost like a punishment, you know, for that, for that practice. And, and, you know, having kids come to school and kind of knowing who they are 
and actually trying to tap into that and bring it out of them, you can still teach the curriculum. I think that's the whole notion of innovation inside the box. And I always give this example, you know, um, I, I, I um, and you might want to share this, you can share this, you know, in the links, if you provide any of those, Josh, yeah. um, the five questions to ask your students to start the school year. And one of them is what are you passionate about? So I, I struggle with reading. It's not that I was a bad reader. I just hated reading. And I think, that's, you know, kind of counterintuitive to what we hope to do in school that we have a lot of kids who walk out of school who can read, but don't want to. And so if you knew how interested I was in basketball, sports, things like that, could you actually start saying like, hey, George, we're, we're supposed to read this book, but, you know, you might love this one because it's basketball related. And would you actually cover the curriculum through that process of having me read a book, talk about it? And like one of the things I'm seeing a lot, a lot of conversation about is how a lot of teachers are going away from like the idea of leveled readers in some cases because they're actually having students they're finding that students are reading at higher levels if they're actually interested in the content of the book and they're actually pushing themselves and i think that's that's where we have to start really focusing on what we're doing with our students is tapping those strengths and i think the other part of your question is you know how do we actually get kids to become problem finders and and not just problem finders because you know there's a lot of you know people in the world that are great at finding problems but they can't actually offer solutions they'll just tell you everything that's wrong and I think that's kind of, it's just the starting point is focusing on problem finders. And I share a story about a teacher that I connected with, you know, that read Innovator's Mindset. And their big shift in focus was having students start with questions instead of actually trying to provide answers for the kids. So the kids actually were leading their learning. Now, they're obviously, you know, it was still tied to curriculum. It was still, you know, on topics of what they're doing. But when I get to ask questions about things that I'm interested in and then the teacher helps me find those ways back to that pathway, I think there's, there's a power in that. So this is what we're trying to develop that they may not be terribly interested in the content or, you know, what we're focused on the curriculum, but developing the skills of asking questions and then going out and trying to find answers to those problems is something that's, you know, that's going to go way beyond school. And that's how we really focus on developing our students is, you know, looking at some of the things that, they're passionate about tapping into them while still, you know, having to do our job and, you know, teach the curriculum as part of what we do as educators. It's, but I think a lot of people see innovation and curriculum as an either or. And I think what Katie and I are really trying to focus on is that it's actually how we do both that can really bring out the best. So the kids are not just simply walking out of school that they're good at school, but they're actually really powerful learners. And I think that's the, the focus of the work that we're trying to do. And Katie, you referenced this before about using universal design of learning to increase discovering foster voice and choice in the classroom. I'll be honest, as an educator, I haven't really learned much about that process. So will you just share what the universal design of learning is all about? It comes from the principles of universal design and architecture. And, you know, essentially it was about when we talk about a building that not everybody can get into, they called it architecturally disabling. And it's essentially saying that a building should be designed so everybody should get into it. And when that's not done well, you end up retrofitting the building by putting all of these different ramps and, you know, after, after the fact elevators, and you're really kind of messing up the original design. And architectural design started universal design decades ago, and they started saying, proactively, we can anticipate these barriers. We can anticipate that there's going to be some people who need to get into a federal building who are going to have strollers or wheelchairs or, a, you know, a visual impairment or hearing impairments. Um, and we have to design buildings that work for all people. And so the universal design for learning is really using that same mindset that says that if there is a lesson that not all students can access and engage with, you know, it's by design 
can be disabling to students. And it's not to say that our students don't have disabilities, but the environment in which they're in can really intensify the effects of those disabilities. And so uh, what we have done historically is we created a one-size-fits-all lesson, which is like everyone's going to read the same book. Everyone's going to listen to the same lecture. Everyone's going to complete the same math problems. You know, everyone's going to complete the same science lab. And all students are expected to do the same thing. And when they can't do those things, we use that as evidence that they can't learn. And then we create different levels and substantially separate placements, and we lower expectations. And what universal design is doing is saying that we can anticipate that we're going to have classrooms with students with very different needs academically, behaviorally, socially, emotionally, culturally. And what we have to do is design our curriculum so it has options and choices embedded so all students can get into the lesson just as they could get into a building. And so it's all about how do we create these on-ramps to learning by providing students with options and choices to make things like relevant and authentic and meaningful to them. And so it's much more it's moving away from a casserole kind of thinking about teaching and learning to a buffet. So instead of saying all students must read this book to learn about characterization, it might be choose a book that matters to you that is, you know, appropriately challenging. And then you can either read it, you can listen to it on audio, you can um, use an ebook to track it on your device. Um, you can use any of these apps to use it. You know, as you're expressing what you know, you can work in in-person groups and digital groups using, you know, chat rooms and discussion boards. And it's really all about saying, if we know what the goal is and we have a firm goal, we have to acknowledge there are so many pathways to get to that goal. And so something we say all the time is firm goals, flexible means, because when you have a one-way pathway to get to a goal, you end up with something that's very one-size-fits-all. And there are too many barriers on that one size fits all. And when you start to acknowledge that, you know what, there's other ways to meet that goal. And then you also empower student voice to say, these are the ways that I've come up with. But like, I'm empowering you to like, actually say, you know what, maybe there's another way. And that's where you start talking about that risk taking and that creation of, you know what, teacher, I really think that I could meet that goal. Can I try this? And you say, like, heck, yeah, like, give it a try. And if you mess up, no big deal. You know, we'll keep going in another direction. But I love that you're trying. And that's like what creation, that's what innovation really is. But also, it's the concept of if we want students to compete with robots, we can't teach them all to do the same things in the same way. You know, it's, it's very easy to program something to do something in the same way. I want students to really understand the power of learning and the power of creation and they can do that when we, in some ways, kind of get out of their way and allow them to be co-designers in that process. So again, UDL is all about acknowledging the goals that you're trying to get all students to, acknowledging potential barriers of one-size-fits-all thinking, and then providing numerous options and choices in how they engage with the material, how they learn, and how they show what they know. To piggyback off of Katie's answer in regards to competing with robots, George, in the book, you cite Google's Senior Vice President of People Operations and his comments on the role of GPA and grades, which he deemed worthless in the hiring process. As districts around the country discuss grading practices, how do you think our students should be assessed? Well, even if you look at um, this is something I talked about and something I did personally, um, when I looked at hiring teachers, Grades are actually, their grades are not a factor at all. And I think that we say, oh, like you'll hear arguments, oh, that's the real world. 
but in reality, I, I'm sure I'm sure that you know, a lot of people encounter this. So we've encountered the teacher that you know is very academically gifted in their content area, but is actually not necessarily a good teacher. And I think that we have to make a distinguish, you know, distinguish between you know some of these skills that are really important and actually you know developing. I think that's why we focused on those eight characteristics because we see them as going beyond what you can actually going beyond simply what a grade tells you. Uh, for me personally, um, one of the things that I see would be a, a huge shift, and and understanding this is that um, we're in a tough situation because grades dictate, you know, uh, a lot of you know how students are getting into college and things like that. But there's also a lot of other factors that are coming into play now, and so really looking at you know how we do portfolio development based beyond simply just you know having a digital dump of information, but using that space as a place to reflect, um, to connect with you know, other people and build some networks. I think that's something that goes so much deeper than what a grade can tell you. And one of the strategies, understanding that issue that we face is that we still are accountable to, you know, government educational bodies and, um, you know, colleges on grades. Uh, one of the strategies I shared was uh, from the blog, Cult of Pedagogy, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name. I actually just connected with her on Twitter because she was reading the book and saw her name in it. I think she was quite surprised. This teacher actually talked about, you know, how it's necessary to to do grades, but uh, when they actually did, you know, uh, writing for English, she actually would not give the student a grade until basically till the very last minute. But she would give them feedback the other time because a lot of times when we see the grade or the score, we lose focus on you know the feedback. And Katie talked about the importance of feedback, um, how essential it is to growth. And so understanding you have, you know, this dilemma of actually where we have to focus on, we have to still provide grades, but you're seeing a lot of districts, what they're doing, they're doing the exact opposite in the sense that they have grades where parents have access to, and it's like constant, you know, like we got to have like updates. And so we need the score, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's where we, you know, get really number focused and actually lose sight of what we're trying to do with our students. So I think, you know, for me, um, if you really want to shift um, the focus on showing what a student, you know, has the ability, what their strengths are, you know, and open up doors to them, I think, you know, portfolios are a way to actually uh, really shift our thinking because there's so many talking about the notion of the universal design for learning. A portfolio is not a one size fits all process. There's so many different ways you can actually have a portfolio look and share whether you're using audio, video, you know, writing, uh, different types of media that can actually really show the growth and development of a child that goes beyond simply what a great could ever tell you. So I think for me, portfolios are something I'd see as a huge shift in what we should be doing in our schools, but not simply having a portfolio for a grade seven class and then a different one for grade eight class, but actually having kids actually create them no matter what class, subject, teacher, grade, or even school. That would be, I think, a, a huge shift and actually would, you know, I'm sure it would help not only students to the next part of their lives, but also, you know, colleges where a lot of students are getting Googled, you know, they want some deeper evidence of what they're doing I think a lot of colleges are actually shifting to that right now mm-hmm. and school is not only about getting kids to college it's really about helping them find a pathway to success that's meaningful to them but I think that uh, a portfolio can open the door to college or other things but you know we obviously don't want to discount a student's path to college as well so it's trying to find that balance of you know honoring what we still have to do but really ensuring that our kids are successful in the next phase of their lives whatever that means and George, if you don't mind, if I can follow up on that answer, 
Mm-hmm. I, I've heard you state data-driven is the stupidest term in education. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> and so a lot of my guests have, have used that term, data-driven. Yep. So if that is the incorrect term, how can our school leaders change their mindset to use other terms? And I know you've used like learner-driven. Yeah. So for me, when I hear people use the term data-driven, I don't just assume they're evil people trying to you know wreck students lives i understand why the term is used and i understand their intent is really the same as mine is to do everything we can do to help kids the the problem is is that what a lot of teachers hear when they hear the term data driven is all we're about is the scores that's all that actually matters and i think that sometimes we are so focused on the score we lose sight of the kid And I think that when we talk about the notion of learner-driven evidence-informed practice, that's where it actually really ties into Katie's work beautifully, um, is really who are these kids in front of us, knowing who they are, and understanding so we can actually bring out the best of them. And it's not saying we don't use data. I actually kind of push people away from the term data because I think the definition of data is, you know, much more inclusive than the interpretation of the word. And so I think that when we use the term evidence, you know, it goes, it can be test scores, it can be assignments, but it can be, you know, the interaction in the hallway, those concepts that, you know, people put on. So that's why we talk about the notion of learner-driven evidence-informed practices. Know the kid in front of you, know who they are, tap in, see their strengths, you know, figure out where we can actually help them grow. And then we use the evidence to actually help guide our practice, but we're not driven by solely getting marks, you know, because there's a lot of people that are successful, didn't necessarily do well in school. And did school actually help or hinder? And I think that when we focus on being really learner driven, we start looking for those strengths as opposed to, well, this kid, you know, is a very good personality, does really well, but, you know, they suck at math. So they're not really gifted. I think that's, I think that's a problem we run into. And like I said, anyone who uses the term data driven, I'm not seeing them as as focusing on, you know, all the wrong things in education. I just think that we've, we tend to, you hear that term thrown around so much that it's really had teachers really question why they, why they're in education anymore, because many teachers were focused on helping kids. And then that term has really made them feel like kids will never matter as much as what our, our state and provincial scores tell us. And I think that's, that's where we have the issue. Katie, you discuss how in the classroom there's very little time used for students to reflect. Why is this practice of reflection so powerful for academic success, and how can the universal design of learning enhance the process of reflection? When you think about we're trying to create a a classroom experience that really fosters and empowers students to make choices, and I read this amazing book. It was by Mike Anderson. It was called Learning to Choose, Choosing to Learn, and he says, When we think about making a choice, we often think of it as like a one-step process, like, you know, that's the thing that I'm going to do. And he talks about it as a three-step process. And it's, first of all, that you're going to choose something based kind of on your interests and your needs and the logistics. And then you're going to do the thing that you choose. But the most important aspect of choice is the reflection on whether or not that choice allowed you to meet your intended goal. And that's what allows you to make a better choice next time. So if we're trying to create a classroom where students are consistently making choices about how they're going to learn and how they're going to share what they know and you know how they're going to collaborate and how they're going to create, we need to provide opportunities for them to reset between all those choices to think about, you know, I, I know that this was my goal. I chose these, these scaffolds or these tools or this way to express myself. 
And now looking back on, you know, basically my contribution or my process, did it allow me to meet the goal I set for myself? And if it did, you can say, you know what, those, those are solid choices that could be replicated. And if it didn't, then you have to really think about, you know, what was the barrier for me and how do I choose differently the next time? And so one thing I hear from teachers a lot is just like, what about when you're working with kids and you provide them with all these options and choices and they just keep choosing the wrong thing? And, you know, my answer is always people don't tend to do the same things over and over again if they know that they are bad choices. It's that you have to really think about what was my goal and did that choice help me to get there? And that's when, again, you provide feedback and you connect relationship wise and say, okay, so, you know, this is, this is kind of our target. Take a moment and think about where you're at in comparison to the target. How do you feel like you're doing? You know, are you feel like you're moving in the right direction? Are you feel like you're stagnant? Are you feel like you're falling behind? And the UDL guidelines, they remind us to foster not only student self-reflection, but student ability to monitor their own progress. Because I want students to eventually start to reflect on their own, start to say in the middle of a task, okay, like this is what I chose to do, but this isn't going so hot for me and I need to change my strategy. But that takes, you know, a huge amount of risk on a student's part because, again, so often we're like, this is how you do the task, complete all these steps. And we don't provide a lot of room for stopping at a step and saying, you know what? There's a better way for me to do this right here. So it's a huge culture shift, teaching-wise, learning-wise, you know, through teachers and through students. But again, as educators and leaders, we need to do the same thing. As we make all these choices and we go through kind of barreling, like, that's my strategy. I'm going to go through it. But how often do we stop to say, okay, what is my goal? What is all the evidence that I have about where I am right now? And could I have made more effective, better choices that would lend me or let me be further along in my process? So that choose, do, review is really kind of the hallmark of every choice that we want students or our colleagues to make. So this question is for the both of you. For those starting their innovate in a box journey, what advice do you have for them? So for me, the, the thing is when we're looking at, you know, where do we start? I think a lot of people look at, you know, this book or, you know, the innovator's mindset or, you know, um, UDL now, uh, what Katie wrote uh, prior to this, and they feel almost like where, you know, where do I begin? Like, and it becomes overwhelming that they see their classes one way. And then we present ideas where the classroom maybe look like an entirely different way in their perception. And so for me, it's just kind of looking at, you know, something that you do is, you know, tie to the curriculum and just asking yourself, is there a way I can implement this now? I think kind of just making those changes, you know, kind of one step at a time and kind of going through that process to see, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And Katie alluded to this, you know, on the notion of micro failures um, earlier and just kind of, kind of learning through that process and then, once you, once you get to a point where, okay, I, okay, I understand this, I, I got this down, then move to your, your second area. But I think that when we look at, okay, we have to totally change everything I do immediately right now, it becomes too overwhelming and we actually end up doing nothing. So for me, it's just kind of like taking a concept from the book. And I think um, what we try to do in the book, and Katie really did nicely, is that we took each of the eight characteristics and I talked about why they're important of the interviewer's mindset. And then Katie provided some strategies on how you can actually achieve those you know, in your classroom. But so if you just kind of focused on 
one of those ideas, which, you know, like none of them work in isolation, right? So like, if you're going to be, you know, if you're going to develop empathy, you'll probably develop the notion of problem finders, um, you know, resiliency, those things will kind of come through that process as well. But just kind of starting with one is where the, the change starts to happen. So I, I think that we just can't get into this all or nothing strategy. It's just kind of focusing on, you know, trying one thing at a time just to help us move forward. Katie, what about you? What do you think are the first steps for our leaders to be innovative? So I would say, I mean, I, I think that one of the most important things that, you know, educators can do as a first step is just talk to kids is, you know, really take some time and, you know, think about with students and say, like, what is your experience like in school? What is your experience like in this class? I'm really open to, you know, ways that you think that, that you would really like to learn some things you'd like to learn about in this class, given, you know, what the content is and what standards are trying to reach. You know, I think that a lot of this can really start with a conversation where kids are given a voice in their own education. You know, so much is planned for them without them, you know, and I think that the first step of innovation is allowing them to be a part of innovating our systems and our schools. And, you know, yes, as teachers, we have, a, you know, much more of a background in, in pedagogy and how to design lessons, but, you know, we're designing, we're designing lessons for this typical mythical average kiddo who doesn't face significant barriers, significant barriers to access and engagement. And so, you know, if, if I could say one thing, it would be like, you know, the beginning of your journey, if you're feeling like, you know, gosh, what I'm doing is, is really resonating already, you know, there's really no need to change is, you know, to really have a heart to heart with kids and to say, you know, every day, are you challenged in this class? You know, do you always see the usefulness of, of kind of what you're doing? And, and in the book, we offer some, some prompts and some different ideas of how you can begin to, you know, ask students for their feedback. But, you know, I think a lot of times it's really easy to say, yeah, like we have this, we absolutely have this as educators. And, you know, the reality is the big thing that has always been missing in hundreds of years of education is, students having the agency and autonomy to contribute in some ways to the design of the curriculum that is affecting their future. So Katie, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Um, my name is Katie Novak UDL um, on all forms of social media and my website is NovakEducation.com. And George, how can our listeners connect with you? For me, it's G-C-O-U-R-O-S, G-Kuros on uh, Instagram and Twitter, and then my website's at georgecross.ca. Make sure you sign up for the Aspire newsletter to stay up to date on the latest giveaways, announcements, ideas, and exclusive content by going to joshstamper.com and signing up. Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast, and if you've gotten any value from this show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire League hashtag as you continue the conversation on social media. George and Katie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for your time. Thanks for having us.